Welcome to the five. The same five questions, a completely different experience every time. I met today's guest at Singo at a local bar where he was actually the host of Singo. He was a really cool guy, but we didn't even know his name. We called him the cool Singo guy. And I was like, you know, I would really like to be friends with this guy. He's really cool. Well, fast forward almost a year later, and one of my really good friends is like, hey, I would like you to meet my roommate. And it was the really cool Singo guy. So now really cool Singo guy is my workout partner. He's one of my best friends. He's almost like a brother to me. Actually, he is a brother to me. When I get the beard back. <laughs> How about you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Aaron. I, uh, I used to host Singo and Trivia. I think that's how I got to know quite a few people in uh, this town that I live in, um, which is a great way to meet people if you're ever looking to. Just get a job working in a bar. You get paid to do it. It's great. highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I've been a bartender for a little while. Been trying to get out of that thanks to some help from, from some friends uh, to try and get a little bit better paid work. Um, just living life as it comes at me and working through it is the best way to go about it, I guess, to introduce myself. I, uh, I'm here to live through the moment. So, well, Thank you for introducing yourself there, Aaron. And I'm excited to hear these myself. So you know the drill. We got five questions to go through, and I'm going to go ahead and kick off the first one. What's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? The weirdest thing that has ever happened to me, um, like all of these questions, I think there's going to be a lot of backstory to these, just so you can fully understand it. Uh, so we're going to actually start um, with where I came from. And I, uh, believe it or not, I grew up in a very small town called Gray on a street named Boring. Uh, and it lived up to its name. Uh, I'm not making this up. This is an actual place that exists. Um, and it was very weird because, um, well, that's not the weird thing, but you know what I mean. Like, it was just weird growing up in that area because it really lived up to its name. You had two things you could do while growing up, um, and that was get in trouble uh, or get lost. And if you got lost, you couldn't get in trouble. Um, and so... Having an older brother and a younger sister, me and my older brother, constantly would go out, find things to do to get into trouble and to get hurt. Uh, that was always something that was happening, especially when you have an older brother that liked to kind of pick on you and bully a little bit. Uh, and as kids do, we all get sick. Uh, and every kid in this town went to the same pediatrician. And this pediatrician worked out of, uh, it was this old castle that they had brought brick by brick over from Ireland or Scotland uh, was the story that they would tell. But it looked really cool. And for legal reasons, I'm just going to call this guy Dr. Castle. Because um, I don't, I don't want to get in trouble <laughs> later on for, for telling you all about this. So anytime you got hurt, anytime you got sick uh, as a kid, we all went to see Dr. Castle. And it was actually a really cool unique experience in itself just being able to walk into something so old and so ancient and just kind of sit in there uh, and then talk to this really nice doctor who was very sweet in every aspect when he was getting a shot you he would distract you uh, as a young child you kind of like help kind of overcome that fear of needles that i had uh, that i think a lot of kids have and like at the end you got your little candy and then you went about your day um, and now we're going to fast forward quite a few years, um, having, he actually, uh, gave me my physical, uh, to go into the Marine Corps. So, um, sorry, pause, dramatic pause, uh, getting out of the Marine Corps, I became a corrections officer. Um, I had been a corrections officer for about a year at this point. And one day we get a call, say, hey, turn on the news. There's a high-speed chase. Uh, so we turn on the one little tiny TV we had there in booking. And, um, you know, vehicle chase, unknown suspect, traveling around, moving at high speeds, got like 12 police cars behind him. 
moving, booking as fast as I can, driving erratically. And I start to realize, I know this road. Like, I know where he's at. I know what's, what this is. And I keep watching, following, trying to do my job while paying attention. And as it goes on, uh, this vehicle crashes into the castle. Uh, just barrels right through the front door. You see a man get out, run around, and the news kind of cuts from there. About two hours later, we get our uh, we get another call saying, "Hey, we're bringing in the high speed chase su- suspect." Uh, and the way booking works, uh, and I can't account for any corrections facility. I can only account for the one I worked in. But we had a garage. Uh, that had two sliding doors on either end. So you open one, the vehicle comes in, you close it, and then you can open the vehicle to pull the suspect out. Uh, And then there's a small hallway to lead into the booking area. Um, We were told this was a violent suspect, so it's automatically the three biggest guys in the room go out to help the officer bring in uh, said suspect. So we get out, and the officer approaches us, and he goes, hey... You guys need to put on gloves. You're going to want to put on gloves, and if you have them, go ahead and put on masks, too. And this is well before COVID, where masks weren't really a standard thing um, that we did not have and I wish we had. Um, I'm going to say um a lot, so go ahead and get used to it. We open the door. Lo and behold, Dr. Castle is sitting there in handcuffs, butt-ass naked, covered in what we were hoping was mud, but smelled like everything else in between. Um, he's sporadic. He's angry. We pull him out. Four guys, two on his arms, two on his legs, bring him into booking. Try to take him through the booking process, but he is uncontrollable. Absolutely sporadic. He's speaking what sounds like a language I've never understood before in my life. So we sit him in the chair, and then my job is done. My shift is over, and I leave. I go on a seven-day, not really a vacation, but I get seven days off during this uh, shift. I come back after seven days thinking, "Uh, whatever's happening, Dr. Castle long outside of my mind, and I wind up in uh, PC, uh, protective custody area. And uh, I find out, yeah, Dr. Castle's in here. Okay, cool, whatever. Don't really think too much about it other than, ah, that's weird that, my childhood doctor is in this facility. Come lunchtime, uh, we have a certain way of going about lunch. And it's usually with inmates that are on work release. Um, and it's usually about three of them. And you just walk around, you open up the doors, you hand them their sandwich, um, which is usually what it is for lunch that day. You hand them their sandwich. And you close the door. You go about your day. Sometimes we'll sit there and we'll talk to the inmates just to try and form bonds, make sure everything's good. Especially in PC, you want to make sure because they're isolated, you want to make sure that they are cognitive and they aren't hurt. So PC tends to take a little bit longer. Lunch goes pretty smoothly. We get to the second level where Dr. Castle's cell is coming along. And I take a look in. He looks like he's just standing there washing his hands, small window, can't see much other than his face. I can see that he's standing by the sink. Awesome. I open the door, and he's, uh, first thing you see is the sink and the toilet. And he's standing in the sink, and he's pushing his hand down into the sink, into this brown, like, liquid in the sink. Like, oh, it stopped up. He's trying to get it unplugged. I know he's not completely there mentally. And as he's pushing it down, inmates handing him a sandwich. I say, hey, Doc, what are you, what are you doing? Is, is everything okay? And the smell kind of hits me. He grabs his sandwich and he goes, oh, I'm just making soup. Plunges the sandwich down into his soup and takes a bite. I slam the door walk away. I have never seen anything quite like that in my life. I hope to never see anything quite like that again. Um, and as the weeks go on, this, this man is using his own 
excrement to create murals on the wall. Uh, it was very weird seeing somebody who I had a lot of respect for as a child dwindle to such a weird sanitary thing. And so I did something I shouldn't have, and I looked at his file. I wanted to know why he was in high ICB stays, why he got charged. Was he just batshit insane? So I opened his file. Again, not something I should have been doing, but I wanted to know why was he arrested he was being arrested for tax fraud. Tax fraud. He had been caught, like, I think he owed the government about millions of dollars. I think it was three-something million dollars that he just scammed over the years, over the years. Come to find out, he was trying to get an insanity plea so he could get away with doing that. The thing is... In that particular state, there is no insanity plea. You get the same treatment as everybody else. So that is by far one of the weirdest things I've seen in my life. Hope to never see it again. Just smart man just didn't fully understand the context of the situation, didn't really know how to pull it off, and was willing to go that far for no profit. Ugh. Uh, so he's eating a poop sandwich for no reason at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely no reason. And I'll say that is like my ultimate weakness. Blood doesn't bother me. Anything like that, gore. But poop, I am, I am weak to poop. That is my kryptonite. I gagged. I didn't open that cell again. I, I I had to step away. I couldn't deal with it. I let uh I let the rover unit just deal with him for the rest of the time. Anytime I got put in there, I was like, you, you go. I'm not opening that door. Just the smell every time you would open this man's cell would make you just gag. I don't think any of us were really able to deal with it super well. It was my understanding shortly after I left, they transferred him to a, another facility because they didn't want to deal with it either. <laughs> I don't blame him. Well, I don't know how you can top that one, but we might as well give it a shot with what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? The scariest thing that ever happened to me. Um, so I joined the Marine Corps when I was 18. I, um, I served for six years. I got very, very lucky in my job after two years. I started as military police. Um, and then I got lucky and I moved into something called uh, Marine Security Guard, uh, which basically you go from embassy to embassy and you stand in a box. It's, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? It is glorified security. Like they make it seem like it's the top dog thing to get in the Marine Corps. Oh my God, you did it. And then you just go stand in what we called the aquarium of death. It was no bigger than your average bar. You were surrounded by glass and cameras and anything you needed to open doors. But before I got this job, the reason I got this job um, was because I was a lowly Lance Corporal on the bottom of the pole uh, before I became uh the wonderful man you see today. I was quite the gung-ho, like, asshole. And I, I very much was. Uh, on gate, I would find any reason I could to fuck with people. Um, because you're bored. You're there for 12, sometimes 14 hours a day. And your shifts rotate. You go from a day shift, you get a few days off, you come into a night shift. So you have no sleeping schedule, so you're just always tired. You're always tired, so you're always ready to fuck with somebody. And I, uh, I made the mistake uh, one night. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was standing at the gate with um, one of my very good friends, still lifetime friends. Maybe even because of this moment, but... Always when you're coming through the gate uh, at this particular Marine Corps base, we have this large canopy that has a light that shines down, but anything outside of that is very hard to see, especially when headlights are coming up on you. 
and I was bored. Nobody had passed through, and I saw the headlights coming, and I made the decision, I'm going to fuck with whoever this is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin their day, because my day is ruined for being here. And it rolls up very slowly, and I mean slower than normal. And it kind of stops outside of the light for a moment. And myself and my uh, fellow Marine were both standing there. He's holding a, uh, I don't know if you know what a Benelli is, but it is a semi-automatic shotgun. A uh, very powerful, very scary weapon. Uh, and he's standing point, is what we call it, which is always four feet behind the, God, I can't remember my own term, but the guy waving everybody through. But he was the point man that night. Uh, but he's standing four feet behind me as cars roll through. But this car has stopped, and I'm making the gesture, hey, come on, come on, it's time to move. And eventually I get tired of it. I was, hey, asshole, like, let's go. And maybe that was the moment that this person made their decision, so they start to roll up. And again, very, very slowly. And at this point, I'm just looking at I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? And he gets in front of me, pulls up driver's side, and as I turn, I see a man holding a 1911 Springfield to his chest pointed at me. And I have no time to think. He pulls the trigger, shoots me in the chest. And I drop back behind these barricades the way that they're set up. There's just enough room for one person to slide in and out right where I was standing, and I fall back. And all I hear are explosions. All I can see is a bright light. I think I am dead. I am dead in my own mind. Uh, all of a sudden, I hear my fellow Marine running over to me. He's asking me if I'm okay. He's shaking me. He's picking me up. And I'm, I start to stand up. I can barely get my feet. And I think I'm shot. And so I'm holding my chest. I'm holding my breath because I'm afraid that if I breathe, I'm just going to cause blood or I'm just going to like do something to mess myself up. And it's not clicking in my mind that I'm even standing at this moment. And I, I start to kneel. I start to vomit. Uh, and I looked down, and we wore these things called a second chance vest. Second chance vest is designed to stop a knife. It's not designed to stop a bullet. It's not designed to really do much other than maybe give you a second chance, um, which this one kind of did, because there is a bullet hole into the vest, and then when I peel it back, the bullet is still outside of the vest, like, in my chest, like, at my heart. And I can't believe it. I am still in shock. I'm still in denial. By the time I realize what's going on, my watch commander is there. There are medics there. People are grabbing me, trying to ask me what happened. I don't know how to respond. Uh, and the medic literally just grabs my vest, rips it off, and he takes a pair of pliers, and he just grabs the bullet in my chest and pulls it out just right there. And I, I was never a religious person. Uh, I'm still not a religious person, but that moment kind of had me doubt everything, uh, up to what I found out was, uh, this guy who'd rolled through the gate, he was a Marine. Uh, he had caught his wife cheating on him. He shot her, shot the other person she was cheating on him with, and then decided that he wanted to kill himself. So he rolled up to the gate and shot me, because why not take yourself out? Why, let somebody, why, why, why take yourself out when somebody else can do it? Um, so I, I can't remember all of the details of what was going on when I got hit. I just know what I read in the report was that the other Marine standing point had emptied uh, his chamber 
or his, that's not really, it's a tube, but he'd emptied it into the vehicle, killing the man in the car. What this guy had done, though, and the reason I am still here, because of Springville 1911 is a powerful, powerful weapon, is he self-loaded his rounds, and he short-loaded that round. So when it hit the vest, it didn't do anything much to me other than give me a weird little scratch. And I actually, like, I have no scar from it, but I still get uh, brass from it, like, the fragments are still in my chest, and they'll come out every once in a while, and you can see my chest turned weirdly red. Um, but yeah, that was by far the scariest moment. I I died. I thought I died. And like the vest said, I got a second chance. So without that, like, we always talk shit about those things. After that, I never talk shit about that vest again. So without that, and... My friend, I, I probably wouldn't be here. Easily the scariest moment in my life. That's absolutely terrifying. And I'm so glad that you're okay. I mean, you know, I've never heard that story. Like, I would have never thought of something like that happening to you. Gosh, just like you said, there was two things that saved you that night that was a very unexpected. It was like you had somebody looking out for you. Oh, absolutely. And I, um, we're not going to let my mom listen to this podcast because I haven't even told her that. My sister knows, my dad knows. Like, they even told me, like, we're not telling your mom. We, we can't tell your mom. So I've still yet to tell my mom that story because I think it would, well, maybe years later, fine. But even then, like, just the fact that I've hidden it for so long, I just, I think she'd kill me. Like, how dare you get, how dare you get into this trouble? Well, thank you for sharing it with us. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's not something I'm afraid to talk about. It's just something, uh, like, it's, like, I just, you don't throw that out at a party. Like, hey, you want to hear about the time I got shot? No, not, not really. <laughs> That's traumatic, you know. It was a big turning point in my life. I, uh, I sat down and reassessed everything. Um, as I told you before, I, uh, I grew up in a racist, homophobic environment. I was that way for a long time, and I think that moment was one of the main moments where I stopped and rethought everything I was doing. I, uh, I, all I could think about for the longest time is how it went hey asshole come on and that might have been that that moment that triggered him like he might have stopped there rethinking what he was doing and that that is constantly an occurrence that still i think about today like if i hadn't have said that if i hadn't have been a dick would he have still drove up you know so it's i th i think it just goes to show like you don't you don't really know what people are going through like you just have to be nice like even if you're in a bad mood just find a way to be nice look at those happy things in your life concentrate on that and focus there don't be a dick to somebody you have no idea what they're dealing with gosh that's heavy but uh i guess we can move on to the next uh question which is what is the most memorable moment of your life so far uh the day i met you <laughs> um, so I, this is one that I, I had to think about because I've had a lot of memorable moments in life um, but I am I've, I have decided uh, to go with this particular one just because well I'll, I'll explain as we go uh, shortly after getting out of the Marine Corps and uh, actually shortly after uh, leaving corrections, uh, I decided to go to college. I wound up going to a school down in Florida. Uh, I went for film. And it was its own interesting experience um, that had absolutely... It's Those two years that I was going through school have had no effect on my life except for this one moment, and I, I am eternally grateful for it, just for it. Um, 
So through film school, uh, we would do a lot of short films. Like you would go out, you would have a production team, you would set up your lights, you'd set up your cameras, you'd set up your sound, and you would get actors to actually like do this. And then you'd treat those actors like they were celebrities, just so you could get an understanding of the feeling for how it would be when you get out into the film world. Uh, my job at that time, uh, I was the gaffer, uh, which basically meant I set up all the lights, did all the storage. And because we were such a small crew, I was just I was the guy who did everything. Lights, uh, wires, I did electric and I couldn't carry everything on my own. So I was just constantly running back and forth uh, for storage. And so we finish our shoot for the night. I go and I put everything up in storage for the night. And the next morning I come in pretty early and I say morning, but it was late afternoon. I come in relatively early, early and I have a couple of these other uh, college students with me. Um, they were all eager, we're all excited about this. We open the storage container that I had closed the night before locked up, open it up, we start getting our stuff out and we hear these tiny sounds, like a little cat is somewhere in here. Oh, a cat, let's find it. We don't want to lock it in here. And so we get down, it's balls hot in this storage container. I mean, it's just like your regular shipping container, no ventilation, nothing, it is just hot. Um, so obviously we don't want to leave a cat stuck in here. So we, we look for it and I dive under uh, one of the higher shelves seeing if maybe it crawled under there and I see these two tiny little kittens just sitting there. I can barely reach them. We actually have to like, they're not coming to us. Um, they're hardly moving at all. So we actually have to get to a point where we unload the shelf, we move it, and then I grab these two little kittens uh, and they do not look good. They are not moving they're barely breathing they have uh just crust all this shit in their eyes on their face not on their nose and i just went up to the instructor i was like hey i need to step away for a while it like showed him the kittens i was like i'm gonna go take care of these unless you want to do it so he lets me go and i take him to the vet um and i've always been a talk person i've never wanted a cat i always wanted a dog so I had no intention of keeping these. I just want to make sure that they were fine. And I get to the vet. I hand them over and I try to leave. And they're like, hey, we need you to stay. Just we need to have somebody here that can take care of these if we're unable to. Or if we put them down, we need to have somebody there for record. I was like, okay, all right, fine. So I sit and I wait there for about two hours. And they come out. And they have this one tiny little kitten that fit in the palm of my hand. And they're like, hey, the other one didn't make it. Uh, we think it was dehydration. Uh, we've got this one stable, but we can't take care of her. She needs to be fed and taken care of like every four hours. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, if you don't take it, we have to put her down. Okay, I'll I'll take the kitten. Like I'll I'll take it. So they hand it to me. They hand me a bottle of KMR and they go, "All right, here's how you poop a kitten." Turns out kittens don't go on their own. You have to take a wet, warm washcloth and rub their butt and make them poop. Otherwise, they will just let it build up and turn septic and they die. So you got to like do that 2-3 times a day. Turns out I had no no will to do this but neither did any of these other college students and so here i am like trying to like take care of this kitten trying to give her away to anybody that would take her and six eight weeks go by and i've been up every four hours bottle feeding this kitten i've got her like wrapped in like a little burrito blanket and this one girl comes up to me. She goes, hey, uh, I hear your kitten started to eat solid food. Like, I'll take her if you don't want her. No, bitch. I've already named her. This is Waffles. She's coming with me. 
And like, I've had this cat for six years now. She's asleep on the foot of my bed right now, just chilling, not paying attention to me. She still ignores me. I've never done anything good enough in her eyes, but one day she'll love me. But I think that's probably one of the most memorable moments of my life because if it, in a lot of cases, if it wasn't for that cat, uh, I may have done something stupid or, you know, just fell off the face of the planet. Uh, I think she's kept me stable in unstable situations. It's crazy how, like, when you have something to take care of, you, you just kind of default to that a little bit like in those dire moments like oh what's gonna happen to my cat like so yeah fuck you you little bitch kind of like those stickers who saved who you know or who rescued who yeah i've had the pleasure of meeting waffles and waffles is one of my favorite cats and i'm not a cat person yeah pretty much i i'm still not a cat person but now there are two in my house and I have I'm not getting rid of waffles. She's she's too good. She's one of my favorite cats because she's your favorite cat. <laughs> she has a way of making not cat people into cat people because she's just like, oh, hey, hi, how are you? You want to pet me? Hang on. All right. Yeah, you can pet me. But only that. OK. All right. We're cool. Like, <laughs> She's very much. A sweet cat. OK, I think we're on to the next question, which is. What's the saddest thing that's ever happened to you? Life is full of sad moments. Uh, I think we all experience them very differently. I think what is sad to one person is not necessarily always sad to another. Um, and I think my saddest moment uh, came from an experience that I had. Um, I know I've started a lot of my stories with like after I got out of the Marine Corps, but it's just such a staple of my life that I can just go back and reference because it was such a big part. And a lot of wonderfully crazy things happened to me while I was in. A lot of wonderfully crazy things have happened to me while I was out. Um, but it took me a while to grow into the person that I am. And a lot of that came from those experiences I got up to this point. The saddest moment in my life uh, comes with backstory. I had just gotten out of the Marine Corps. I'd moved um, back to my hometown, uh, well, a little bigger part of it outside. Uh, I had no friends. Uh, all of my friends were still in the Marine Corps, either overseas or they moved back to their home states when they got out. I was just, uh, I would bar hop, you know. That's the only thing I really knew like how to make friends is talk to people. Uh, and I found a small group of people playing trivia. So I started playing bar trivia with these guys. And one of these guys, I would always show up a little bit early, uh, have a drink, and he would always show up a little bit early too. I'm not going to name him. I'll give him a pseudo name. We'll just call him Alan. And so me and Alan would show up. We would drink and we became really close friends really fast. We had shared a lot of experience. He was also... Uh, prior military, he had gone through uh, several things in life that we were both able to relate to, uh, and we just became fast friends. As a matter of fact, he was my first roommate uh, when I moved. When I actually like moved out and like, oh, I have a, I have a big boy job now outside of the Marine Corps. I can, I don't have to rely on my parents anymore. So he actually became my first roommate, and we lived in the downtown area of the city. And the majority of the time, it was just me and him going out, hanging out, having a good time. I had other friends, but they were more acquaintances as opposed to friends, if that makes any sense. Like, they were a part of the group. Uh, but Alan was my best friend, like, ride-or-die kind of guy. Um, we really just... We clicked in, in a way that I hadn't experienced since I was in high school, you know, high school best friends, but even those guys were gone, you know? Uh, so we hang out until I, we, we live together, we would hang out all the time until I leave to go to school. And I was in school for two years. Uh, and in that time, he moved to 
uh, the city I currently live in. Uh, while I was down there, he was dealing with some trouble uh, relationship-wise. Uh, he had a girlfriend that had been cheating on him that he was not happy with, that he was just, like, any time we would talk, he was just not in a good place. He was either really drunk or just really depressed or really sad. And uh, so I would do my best as his friend to kind of help him. Uh, but, you know, distance is distance. You can only do so much, then listen. Uh, coming close to my end of school, he comes down to visit and it's like, oh, back to the old days. Let's go hang out. Let's go like to a bar. Let's just chill and talk and have a good time. And for the three days that he was there, just things were very different. I could tell something in him had changed. He was just he was not the same bright person that he once was. He was very depressed would probably be the best word to put it. He was very depressed and I wanted to help him feel better. I had a job offer uh, in Florida uh, that I denied because he's, me and him talked. He said he needed help back here. Uh, he needed a roommate after his girlfriend had broke up with him and left. He just couldn't afford his place. He needed a roommate. I needed a place to stay. I'm sure I can find work in Knoxville. <coughs> Joke. Um, and so I find myself moving to Knoxville against my better judgment. And I come here and I stay. Uh, we move in together. I stay. I look for work. I have a very hard time, but I, I'm not pressed for money at the moment because, uh, I still have a little bit left over for my savings and, uh, like bartending's not that hard to find. So I'm not super worried, but he starts to get on me about not having a job. Well, all right, you're not my mom, but like, I, I get your point. Like it's, I haven't failed in rent or anything. It's like, all right, cool. So I go and I, I find a job uh, working at Sawworks uh, as a bartender and a brewer. And he wor He gets a job there shortly after me. Uh, he gets hired on as the manager. I'm just there to assist in the brewing help. And then when they need a backup bartender, I, I hop back and I bartend. Uh, my main job was to run a canning line. So I didn't really have a lot to do with the bar. I noticed, though, after he came in as their GM, that he started to nitpick a lot on a lot of things I was doing, not just at work, but at the house. It's like, okay, like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. We're not hanging out anymore. We're not going out anymore. Like the only time we really hang out is when he's drunk at the house and I'm sitting on the couch. So things have kind of distanced with us for a while. And I'm doing my best to try to figure out what's wrong because he's very clearly sad. I start to notice marks on his arms I start to notice the bags in his eyes. And so I confront him one day because he's not the same person I knew. And I ask him, what's going on? Like, what is this on your arm? Like, why are you so fucking thin? Uh, he had apparently been doing hard drugs for long before I had moved up. And I'd been there for, I guess, a year and a half, two years at this point. And, uh, so as his friend, I'm like, hey, we need to get you help. We need to find something for you. We need you to get better. Like, let's let's get you into a program. Let's go to the VA. Let's see what they can do for you. And he denies it the whole time. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can quit. I don't have to do this. Just to the point where he's getting angry. Like, okay, I back off, go about my day. But every once in a while, I still try to, like, hit him on this. Like, hey, man, let's, let's get you help. Like, I've I even caught him uh, injecting twice uh, in his room. He's coming up, which caused its own spat of arguments. And so I, I get to a point where I'm almost afraid to approach him, but I'm afraid to get away from him, too, because I know that if I do, like, who's going to watch him? So time kind of moves forward. He finds uh, another girl 
that he just immediately hooks up with and moves in with, like leaving me to the apartment. My name's not on the lease, so I'm not super worried about it, but I, I pay my portion of the rent. He pays his. And then he starts saying, hey, I'm not, you're not paying your rent. Like you need to, you need to pay your rent. I've been paying him in cash as a bartender like this whole time. So I have no way to prove that I haven't, but also he has no way to prove that I live there. So it starts this whole back and forth argument. I, uh, I decide to take a vacation, just kind of step away for a little bit. And I, I drive to Colorado for two weeks, which is an amazing experience. I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful, beautiful state, uh, especially Buena Vista is a gorgeous lot of hiking. Uh, and I spend two weeks out there camping, hiking, and doing drugs. <laughs> not, not the hard stuff, though, just legal. Um, maybe I'm kind of a hypocrite, but I've never done heroin. And uh, <laughs> so I come back after my two weeks. I think things are going to be better. Uh, I have uh, another friend outside who's looking after waffles. And I come home and I find... My cat's not there. So I freak out. I'm running around. I call the person who's supposed to be looking after her. Like, hey, where's my cat? Uh, I haven't seen her. And they went, well, she disappeared after about three days. So, like, I kept coming by. Like, maybe she was just hiding. But the food was not taken. The water was still there. And so I kind of spaz. And so I call Alan. Like, hey man, did you happen to let waffles out if you came by to visit the house at any time? He goes, oh, I've, I've got her. I was like, why do you have my cat? He's like, well, she didn't look like throwing out all kinds of excuses. So I go to this place that I've never been to before. And it is a dump. Absolute. Like just garbage everywhere. It looks like he hasn't cleaned in a while. He's got syringes just sitting out on the table and my cat is hiding in the closet, just cowering in the closet when I get there. And he's like, oh, well, she's just been doing that. I'm like, well, she's been doing that because you took her to an unfamiliar place without me around. You stole my cat. And I was like, and I, I confront him. I was like, you're going to try and sell her. We're just trying to get money. You've been at me for more money for a while. Another huge argument. I grab my cat. I leave. And this is all kind of coming to a head, but I still feel something so like I want my friend back. Like I see that he's just going down this terrible thing. A week goes by. I've just gotten um, a new job where I met our mutual friend and um, they uh, like things seems be going really well. I I, I haven't heard from him in a while. He's not asking me for money. It's fine. Lo and behold, about seven o'clock one morning, I am woken up to uh, the worst smelling, absolute shittiest situation where he dumps used cat litter on me while I'm in bed and tops the, the cat litter box onto me. And he's like, where's my fucking money? He is high out of his mind. I can see that he is high. He is just shaking. His pupils are dilated. He just has, he, I don't even think he knows where the fuck he is. And he's screaming at me about giving him the money that I owe him and losing his mind. And he grabs me and I push off of him and I don't say anything. I just grab my cat and I run out of the house. And I just, I didn't know what to do. So I just took her to a mutual friend uh, and I, I shaking so angry, but no way to really deal with this. He keeps texting me, calling me, telling me I owe money. So I just, I block his phone and I don't go back uh, for a while. And when I do, I find all of my stuff just in a pile in the living room, uh, like it was thrown there, my TV, uh, my mattress, all of my stuff, TV's broken, my laptop's broken. Uh, I had a table that he broke in half for some fucking reason. So I just grab my bed stuff and I walk out, I leave, I make sure his number's blocked and I lock the door behind me, never to be heard from again. 
and then I became homeless for about two weeks. I was just living in my car, crashing, you know, one person's couch or another. Uh, I was, I had a gym membership. I was taking showers at the gym before I go into work. Uh, and that's when I talked to our friend and that's how we became roommates. So I'm very grateful to that person for saving me from that situation. But I still think like that was by far one of the saddest, lowest moments of my life. Uh, just having watched somebody that I was so close to, somebody that I would have called brother at a time, just deteriorate to nothingness, to absolute rage over a high? I, I, I'll never know what he was chasing. I, maybe he just wanted happiness and that was the way he found it. I haven't talked to him since. I haven't seen him since. Uh, last I heard, he was still alive. Uh, but not looking good so i i don't know what happened to him i don't i kind of don't want to know i think it would break me down if it were anything other than he found recovery you know it's like watching it happen to family just that constant walking downstairs and they're not coming back up you know but yeah saddest moment one of your biggest attributes is how much you care for people and how much you care for your friends and like the the links you'll go to take care of your friends and everything and I really appreciate it like I really appreciate you that I think that's why we bonded so quickly is like I can just tell you're an authentic genuine good guy that, you know, actually cares about people. So I can see how this would really, really affect you, you know, negatively, just because you, it's not that you just care, you want to make things better for people. And sometimes you can't, and sometimes that's the hardest, that's the hardest thing. I think it's the, the hardest thing in life is to walk away because that may be the best thing you can do because it's not, you have to realize you can't help them. You can only help yourself at that point and that's to pull yourself out of that situation and to just move on. Um, and it sucks. I still think about him. I, I wish the absolute best for him. I, I want him to get better. Um, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pursue it. I'm not going to chase it. And I don't want to talk to him because I don't want to hear that. He's not like, that's one of my biggest fears is one day somebody that knew us is going to be like, Hey, did you hear about Alan? He passed. Like that's, that's a day that I do dread. Um, because I'll always be questioning myself on, Hey, what, what could you do more? And I, I always come up with the same answer is nothing I could do. I think I did everything I could in that situation. I think I did everything that was right. Uh, but I still, you know, it's always, there's always going to be that what if, you know? So yeah, I think it's best not to burden yourself with that question. Just move on. Just, just keep taking baby steps. That kind of leads into the, the final question here is uh, if you had advice based on your life experience that you'd like to share with everybody out there who's listening, what would it be? I think the best thing that I have ever been taught is that there is an infinite amount of versions of yourself. Um, there's the version of you that exists inside your own head. And then there's that infinite amount of versions of you that come into everybody's head that you meet. Um, whether that version in your head is the hero of the story, it could be the villain in somebody else's just because you were having a bad day. I think you should always keep that in mind whenever you're talking to somebody that you're creating a new version of yourself and you want to think about what kind of version you're going to leave behind. Uh, I myself... I want to leave, if it's even possible in an infant number, but uh, I want to leave behind more kind versions of myself in somebody's head. I want somebody to think I'm, I'm kind, respectful, polite. Uh, I want them to think that I'm there to help. That's the version I want to leave behind. And I'm not saying I haven't left behind an asshole or two, even in, you know, recent days like i i fuck up i have my bad days we all do 
But I think one of the key things is, is to try to leave behind a version of yourself in every person's head that is as good as you hope to be. Maybe even better in some people's case. I just, all I want, and not just for me, but for everybody, to be remembered and thought of in a kind and caring way. Because even assholes, you know, just having a bad day, you never know. You never know what that person's going through. So be careful. Think about what you're leaving behind in somebody's head. And always, if the option is there, always try to go for that kind option. Like even if it's something as, hey, I like your hat, that could make somebody's day. You know, now you exist as a hero in their world, you know, because you just help them come up. Instead of saying, oh, ugly shoes you got there, bro. Like even if you meant it as a joke, they may not have taken it that way. And now you're a villain in their story. So always, always be conscious of that, I think. Uh, it's something I try to do. It's something I, I try to practice. It's something I would recommend everybody try to do. I think it would help leave behind a little bit better of a world. I'll say thank you very much for uh, letting me interview you today. Uh, and this, this is a great example of actually what I wanted from this series is you and I, we talk almost every day, at least somehow, you know. And then when we're at the gym working out together, we have pretty long gym sessions and we just talk, talk, and talk. And I heard stories today that I've never got to hear from you. And I've, and I've got to hear insights from you that I've never got to hear from you. And it just it makes me appreciate you even more. Well, I greatly appreciate you for helping find the words. Because when you told me about this, I, I literally had to stop and like think, like, how do, I, how do I word this? How do I go about this? How do I vocalize these experiences that I've never really thought to vocalize before? Um, so thank you for allowing me the opportunity to do that. I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate you. And, you know, thank you for being my friend. And thank you for sharing this with the world. Love you, buddy. Love you, too. I want to thank you all for listening today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Also, check out the video podcast at Handlebar ASMR on YouTube for extras.